Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. Our show this week is about the Cinema Museum on the edge of Kennington, tucked away behind the Elephant and Castle in the old Lambeth Workhouse. We took a visit to the museum, had a tour, spoke to Ronald, the founder, essentially, and one of the two main guys now. You can find us on Twitter, at SLHC, southlondonhardcore.com. We're on iTunes as well. And facebook.com slash southlondonhardcore. We're part of the Holdfast Network, so you can go to holdfastnetwork.com for other excellent podcasts. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. So we're joined now by Ronald Grant from the Cinema Museum. Welcome to the show. Hi. The museum itself has grown essentially out of your own passion and your own desire to, to see these things collected and saved and preserved and then presented to the public. Is that the case? I think uh, as a, somebody at school, I was rather academically poor and felt I wasn't really very capable of anything. And when I started uh, looking into cinema and movies and so on, I felt I found something I was very passionate about. And then when I entered the cinema business, I found that very quickly I was more, I don't know, more capable. But because I was so interested and I read up about everything, I found that people who'd been in the business for years and who were sour and fed up with doing it, because it's... Uh, wasn't project, being a projectionist not a very attractive job. You're working on social hours. You're working when everyone else is off and enjoying their evenings off. Um, and uh, you're confined in a little cabin with other people. And uh, generally speaking, it, and it, it's not well paid either. C- cinema work was a little like uh, catering, uh, poorly paid and not very good conditions. Um, so the people who were working, I worked with were all rather sour and hated the job. And because I was studying and finding out everything I could, I found very quickly that I knew more than a lot of the people who'd been there for years because I was passionate about it. So suddenly it seemed I was good at something. I found that I had found something that I could... Uh, not perhaps excel at, because I have many shortcomings in terms of my knowledge, but uh, it was um, something that took hold of me, really, and uh, consumed me, if you like. And I got tremendous joy out of watching movies, uh, the experiences of watching movies as a child, for example, going uh, to the village hall and being taken to New York to be taken to the, the Wild West to be amused and to be terrified. Emotionally, there was a tremendous range of experiences that you could have. So um, from childhood, really, I, I loved the pictures. But then the focus came gradually as I uh, left school. I wanted to be in projection and um, got a job and enjoyed the job immensely and couldn't believe that while my school... I lived in an, an, an agricultural village, and my friends were going to be working on farms, they were going to be bricklayers, carpenters, they were going to do manual work. 
I couldn't believe that I was standing watching cowboy films in a warm projection room being paid for it and they were out in the freezing cold of the winter working outside and um, there was me um, getting money for this. It seemed like paradise. It's very telling that the, the focus of the museum as well as obviously representing the medium itself in terms of films and ephemera it's very much about you preserve a lot to do with the experience of going to the cinema. It's not so much about film in terms of actors and actresses and directors. It's about decoration. It's about materials and objects that you'll find there. Well, yes and no. It, it is um, peripherally about film because, of course, the films are shown in cinemas. And we do have a large collection of film material. We have cans of film going back... Uh, well, to the beginning, we have, uh, I don't know if you know of Mitchell and Kenyon, I don't want to go into a lot of boring detail, but they were a company in Blackburn in Lancashire that started making films in 1897. Well, we have 75 of their camera negatives um, that are unique, and nobody else has them. In some cases, they're not even in the British Film Catalogue, which uh, covers the whole British output. So um, we do have a lot of film and we have a lot of photographs from of films and we have a lot of uh, film uh, reviews, of, uh, reviews in magazines and specific reviews which are only reviews. In other words, if you had a cinema, say in the 30s, 40s and 50s, you could subscribe to a review service so somebody went and saw all the new movies and sent you a review of what the film was like for your kind of cinema. So if you had a, a high-class cinema, they would market for that. If you had a sort of middle-of-the-road cinema with a very mixed audience, they would market for that. And if you had a, a kind of rough house, they would market for that. So, of course, films with... Uh, about uh, courtroom dramas, trials and so on, with a lot of dialogue. If you had a roughhouse cinema, this would be said, not for you. You know, It would be a better class, people who would sit and endure a lot of dialogue and, and verbal fencing. So uh, we have a lot of these film reviews. They're only the review. They don't, there's nothing else connected with them. So the films are, there is a focus on it, but the public will see if they come to visit uh, the experience of going to the pictures, the, um, the material that you would have seen when you went to the cinemas at a certain time. And um, because uh, I think the, really the focus of the museum, I'm afraid, is partly to do with my own interest Film studios are private places. They've got guards on the gate. You cannot get into a film studio unless you either work there or you're going to see someone there specifically. Cinemas were in every high street in every town. You paid your ninepence or your one and six or your two shillings. You could go into the cinema. You could get a job in the cinema. They needed staff. There were people with torches showing people their seats, people tearing the tickets, people in the pay desk. So you could easily get a job in a cinema 
And when the cinemas were being demolished, you could go and look and they'd talk to the, de de the demolishers and buy perhaps some bits or get some of the bits. That were. Studios, they're locked away. You cannot get near them, private places. So there's very little here about making films, but there is a fair bit on the films themselves and then the experience of watching the films, which the going to the pictures is the thing that interests me because I worked in exhibition for oh, many years really. I started as a 15-year-old schoolboy and then um, when I was 29 I came to London to work at the British Film Institute and then when my father died I dropped out in the 60s for a while, when moved out to the country and then came back in to work at the Ritz in Brixton and did all sorts of jobs, including projection managing and uh, serving the coffees there. So. It was revisiting the uh, cinema that you started in, in Aberdeen that built the collection to, to really sort of museum levels, wasn't it? Yes. <clears throat> I, when I left school, I got a job with this local company in Aberdeen, James F. Donald Aberdeen Cinemas, and I worked for a, an offshoot of them called the Aberdeen Picture Palaces, uh, which they'd bought up. Um, and uh, on a visit to Aberdeen, I found out that, that my old boss had a lot of material that he, uh, he needed to dispose of because the building they were in had been sold. And that really was connected with the creation of the museum. If that material hadn't been acquired at that point, then I'm not quite sure what the, how the, my own journey would have gone, where it would have gone to. But that was the that was the catalyst for the setting up of the museum was the acquiring of all these material connected with cinemas. And it was things like seats and signage and seats and signs, curtains, um, equipment and all kinds of small items that were not directly uh, focused on when you think about cinemas. For example, there were many, many organ slides. With in the, On the slides were the words of songs that when the organist was playing the music, this, these would be shown on screen and the audience would be encouraged to sing along, so community singing, if you like. Um, there were m many light fittings. Uh, there were things, extraordinary things, like uh, the locks from the lavatory doors. Now, this sounds a bit absurd, but actually, these uh, uh, it used to be that when you went to a toilet in some a cafe or a cinema or somewhere, you needed a penny. You put a penny and you slid the, uh, the handle of the lock and that got you into the cubicle. And these are heavy brass mechanisms, uh, chromium or nickel-plated, and this company had piles of them still in the greaseproof paper, uh, tied with string straight from the factory. It had never been used. So the idea of just allowing all this stuff, so I bought. So, And I do think now that if ever we, for example, if we went into a cinema, that we acquired a cinema or we were given a cinema, 
I could restore the locks to the doors because I've got at least half a dozen brand new locks with these old penny and slide the handle. So everything you can imagine, I can't tell you. There were cinema doors, there were stacks of cinema doors uh, that they'd taken out of the cinemas. It was rather tragic, really, because they had probably 50 cinema doors. And I bought, from memory, I bought, I think, two pairs of ones which have chromium grills on them and two sets of another which were planar with large chromium push plates on them, so uh, half-moon push plates. And the rest, I'm afraid, went to the dump. It was really tragic. Firstly, the, I didn't have money to pay for all, to buy everything or buy as many things as I wanted. Secondly, it all had to be moved and shipped to London, which is another cost on top. And then thirdly, when it arrived, where the hell is it going to go? Because uh, we didn't have unlimited space. We were a bit crowded as it was. Well, fortunately, we managed... Uh, to put it into a neighbouring space, but uh, that was just coincidental. Where were you based at that point? We were based in Brixton in a building called Raleigh Hall. If, you, um, if you're familiar with, Bri- with Brixton and you're familiar with where the Ritz is at the top of Cold Harbour Lane, then to the right of the cinema is the Tate Library and then there's a street and then was the building where we were. It's now at the back of something called Windrush Square, which is a new, uh, newly appointed space. And it's uh, recently been refurbished for the, uh, the Black Cultural Archives who are in there now. I think they've built some extensions onto it. But it's a lovely building. It was a Georgian building with uh, a curved front. And... Um, it was just in very poor condition because it had been neglected for years. And then we, we eventually outgrew that and had to move to Kennington, near where we are now. When you were uh, based in Brixton, were the public coming in to the... Or was it more of an archive than a museum? It was more point? of an archive, really. Um, the, uh, pe- people are diff- find it difficult to figure out what I think is very basic and straightforward. If you have a fabulous collection, but you don't have somewhere to display it properly, you're kind of peddling, you're, you're, you're treading water until you can find the place and or find the money to let people see it. But sometimes people can't understand why you're not able to do that at the moment, or if you're not able to do that, why you're bothering at all. But for us... We had, we thought, and I think correctly, a fabulous collection. It's just that we didn't have the place to show it uh, and we didn't have the money at that point. So for a long time we just treaded water until the things we needed came into place. Uh, So we did have, we had researchers and people came around, but not in any quantity. And in a sense, because of our shortcomings, there is an element of that today. Uh, For example, in a museum, you might expect to be open uh, however many hours a day, every day. Well, as we're volunteer-run, that's not always possible. So we ask people to ring up and make appointments so we can um, 
shepherd people into coming together. So instead of doing a tour at 11 o'clock with two people and then doing another tour with six people at 12 o'clock and then doing another tour with one person at 4 o'clock, we try to get everyone to come at once on the same day. Uh, some people feel that they can't get their heads around that. They think the place should be wide open all day. Well, in, as we're not funded, that's not possible. And as there's no wage staff, it's all volunteers, you're dependent on people's time and people are able to give time. I think also from a visitor's point of view, coming in as part of a group, particularly at the start of the tour when we're sat down watching films, that's part of it. It's a communal experience, isn't it? So having a group around you only helps. It is, and you'd be surprised how it varies. Sometimes you have a group and they go out all friends almost. They're all chatting to each other as though they've known each other and they're very engaged. And the next time you see people (laughs) and they're they're still and silent and they don't engage with other people, it's very variable. And often you have people coming and they go out with faces... You wonder if they've, that they've, um, that any of what you've said has gone in, and what they've thought about it, because you've got so little back from them. And other people are very voluble and very interested, and they ask questions. And I have seen the tour go on for nearly three hours because people are asking so many questions, wanting to know about this, that, and the other. So it it varies quite a lot depending on the people. Um, Sometimes people are very doer and not responsive. And a lot of people are very friendly and interested and so on. It's just, there's no pattern to it. So between this building, where we are now, the old Lambeth Workhouse, and the place in Brixton, you were in, uh, was it an old fire station, is that right? Yes, a London County Council fire station. When the London County Council went into the GLC, then as the GLC wound up, all their premises were given over to the local councils and uh, Lambeth inherited uh, this uh, former fire station in Renfrew Road. It was built in the 1890s and, um, well, there's two fire stations actually next to each other. One's in the 1850s and the other, which is joined on to it, was the 1890s. We were there on the ground floor, the basement, and the stable block next door for about, oh, perhaps, seven, six, seven, eight years. Uh, and then Lambeth Council wanted to sell the building because, of course, pr- property was uh, going um, up in price, is getting so valuable, and I think Lambeth probably had one of their many financial problems. Uh, and uh, they wanted to sell it, and they wanted to sell it with vacant possession. There were tenants in the flats above whom they moved out, and then they asked us to leave. So this building, which is uh, about uh, 50 yards away, was vacant at the time, and uh, we asked the the health trust who owned it if we could move in. Uh, And they said, uh, after considering it, they said, yes, temporarily. And uh, we've been here 17 years. There's a connection to some incredible film history with Charlie Chaplin, isn't there? Yes. Uh, Charlie lived in this area in Kennington uh, as a child. He was uh, purportedly born in East 
lane off the Walworth Road. Well, there's some, uh, there's some question about that because his birth was apparently never registered. So there's no paperwork to back that up. But he says he was born in April, I forget the exact date, April 1889. And uh, he, his mother, Hannah, uh, was a, a music hall singer. She was married to Charles Chaplin Sr., who was another musical singer. And um, he left her and went to live with a woman in Kennington Road. So she was left with no income because her voice went uh, when she was uh, singing in, in a theatre in Aldershot. And therefore she was unable to continue in her employment. So she took in laundry, uh, took in washing and took in uh, um, tailoring, uh, repairs, uh, fixing up people's clothes. But that wasn't regular enough to keep her going. The man, her, her old man, wasn't paying support for the kids, and she was desperate at times. There were lots of moonlight flits where she'd have to leave the rented rooms without paying the rent and move somewhere else. And uh, uh, at some point, she was so desperate, she applied to enter the Lambeth workhouse with the two boys. She had uh, three children in all. Uh, one of the children was taken away by the father, and then there were two half-brothers, Charlie, who was the legitimate son because he was born during her marriage, and then there was Sidney, who was five years older, who was born out of wedlock. So the two boys came with her in here to the workhouse and after a little while here, because there's no school here, so the Board of Guardians found us school places for them at Hanwell. So that's a orphan and poor, Orphans and Poor School at, uh, near Ealing. It's just next to Ealing. So the boys were sent there. Now orphans, of course, have uh, no parents. They have no homes. So they were, um, it's a live-in school. So they went there and they were over there. And in Charlie's autobiography, he talks about having been here, being sent to the school, which they hated, uh, and then coming back to see their mother here. I suspect Charlie is the nine-year-old one getting homesick to see his mother. So they arrived here. They were shown into the visiting room or the visitor's room, and Hannah was sent for. When Hannah peered and opened the door of the visitor's room, they were shocked by the change in her from when they'd seen her last. Uh, it was said that she was pale, worn down looking, weary, depressed, thin, uh, in drab workhouse clothes. She was delighted to see the boys. Uh, they had shaved heads against head lice. Uh, she rubbed their shaved heads, there were some tears, and they sat chatting in the visiting room. When they went away to go back, presumably, to the school, the boys kept saying what a difference they saw in her. Now, that visit was in the room where you came first of all, that the room where the cinema is, is the visiting room of the workhouse. 
So um, Charlie talks about the stigma of being known to be in the workhouse or be in the workhouse or having been in the workhouse. Of course, when you have a shaved head, it's a signal to everybody else that you're a workhouse brat um, because of the incidence of head lice in amongst poorer children. So, uh, and again, uh, like the uh, adults having to be bathed or showered before they came into the workhouse because of body lice and the bedding, I think the head lice again, so that all the the, the linen didn't get, the, the pillows and so on, didn't get moving with uh, lice to infect other kids. So... Um, Charlie says that in the street, of course, he could be identified as coming from the workhouse. And at school, of course, bullying and um, and uh, teasing and uh, all sorts of name-calling as well. So he, he, he talks about this place being here and how uh, unpleasant it was. Yeah, you get the impression, looking into reading interviews and his uh, the book he wrote, and also he wrote that other book about the voyage, didn't he, when he came back to London on a holiday. There was a lot of writing to do with Charlie, and I'm afraid some of it you have to take right. a pinch of But salt. what comes through, though, is that the connection with where he was from, it's mm. not like, you know, some people, they live somewhere and they, just, and they move on and they never kind of mention it again. It, was, it, was, very, it was very central to him. Mm. He never forgot the times here. Uh, and, of course, in the film, the character... Is somebody with very little a tramp, the tramp, um, and uh, there is the uh, proposition that many of the sets in Hollywood uh, for the films he made are based on Kennington, on the places he lived and the places he knew. Um, there's uh, quite a lot of people have made comparisons between the, the and he came visiting here. Um, as well, and uh, it, um, for me, the, the great tragedy is that he died before we came here. Uh, I would have loved to have heard his experiences and what he remembered of being. I'm sure he had lots and lots of. Um, I just bought a book yesterday, uh, the, um, a book about. Um, I forget now if it was about. Um, Lambeth, but it said that, oh it was in fact it, the, down at the bottom of Kennington Lane is the library uh, called the The uh, Durning, the Durning mm. thank you and the caretaker of the library lived in the flat above, there's a flat upstairs and Charlie knew him by, uh, because I don't know, how familiar are you with this particular well, part my dad said that he lived round the back there by the court was it Near the court. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was describing a scene once of uh, me and my dad walking around about. Yeah, the sheep. Yeah, it broke loose. I mean, yeah. he thought it was hysterical to see. Yeah, all but these you'll tell adults. it better than me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. To see all the adults chasing the sheep. Mm. There was a slaughterhouse round yeah. the corner, and a, and and I think there was a butcher's on the other side near the court. And uh, in his book, he said that um, uh, the sheep broke loose. And all the adults were trying to pen the sheep in. It was running about, um, frightened and uh, so on. And he thought it was hilarious how the sheep was um, managing to give them the slip. And then, of course, finally they caught the sheep. 
And Charlie realised it was going to have its throat cut and thought it's not so funny for the sheep. But while he saw them running about, he thought it was hilarious. You can see how that informs his work, can't it you? Does, just yes. that anecdote alone. Yes, surely. Um, next to uh, the house was a pickle factory, and there was a tremendous slough, strong smell of vinegar in the air always. Um, so uh, Kennington Cross is quite central to his experiences, because and the, uh, the Kennington Cross is where Kennington Lane crosses Kennington Road, because round the corner at 287 Kennington Road, Charlie Chaplin Sr. lived with his mistress Louise. And Charlie, from time to time, especially if Hannah was either in the workhouse or she, was, she had mental problems and was taken to Canehill Asylum in Coolsdon, which is right on the very edge of London, beyond Croydon. Um, and um, whatever reason, he was the father to look after the boys for a little while. And so he lived in there at 287 oh, Kennington They've got a plaque Road. up, haven't they? They've got a black slate plaque yeah, on the yeah. front, uh, put on by the Kennington, the Kennington Society, I think it is. Or is it the Vox? It's the Vauxhall Society. Oh, right. And, of course, people love to tell you, as somebody did just the other day, that the date of his death is wrong. It says on the plaque that he died in 19... 78, and instead he died in 1977. Uh, also, it's on the wrong house, I believe. <laughs> yeah, my dad said that as well, actually. <laughs> of those two errors, one's much bigger than the other. There's a typo, and then there's getting completely the wrong yes. house. David Robinson, who's done a lot of yeah, he's uh, study historian, isn't he? Yeah. Chaplin, yes. He was the originally the film reviewer of The Times, and uh, uh, he wrote a book about Chaplin, which was the basis for the Robert Downey film. It was based right. on David Robinson's book. Well, he's done a lot of digging, and I think there's a new book on its way. Right. Um, and he says that when he checked with the council offices, the chaplains lived in the house next door. Now, if you stand outside, there, to the right of the house with the plaque, there's another house exactly the same. To the left, the house has a door at the different side. So the window and the door are in a different position. But this, to the right, the window and the door are in exactly the same position. So I think that when Charlie was elderly, he came over and he mm. said, that's where we lived. But the houses are absolutely identical, but next door to each other. And he just um, made a mistake. So, and the plaque was opened by uh, Ralph Richardson. He unveiled oh, right. the plaque. And Una Chaplin, Chaplin's widow, was there. We have the photos of it here. But uh, there it is. It's there. And then round the corner at 39 Methley Street, where the, he saw the sheep, uh, there's a, a blue plaque, a circular blue plaque, that was put up by the Dead Comics Society. I think they've changed their name now. They've got a <laughs> this group have a different name, but at that time it was the Dead Comic Society, and they paid to put it on 39 Metley Street. Mm -hmm. But he lived in a lot of other places here, and because Hannah was flitting about all over, and in West Square, which is a, now a very upmarket place round the back, they lived mm -hmm. there. 
for a while because Hannah knew a woman there who took them in for a while. And, of course, the, the place that Charlie liked most of all was Pownall Terrace, which is... Do you know where the Regal Cinema was in Kennington Road? Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, you have the crossover of Kennington Lane and Kennington Road. Yeah. And then you go right towards where the, the plaque with the wrong house <laughs> is. And diagonally across the road, there's a place with a curved frontage with a Tesco uh, Express downstairs. Oh, and at the end of Black Prince Road, is it? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, the uh, Kennington Regal. Oh, and what right. they did was, it was a cinema, it was the Kennington Regal, then it was a Granada, then it was a Jesus International Evangelical Church, then, oh, sorry, between that there was Bingo, and then it was a oh, Jesus yeah. International yeah. Church. And then they got permission to demolish the cinema, but they left the curved frontage with right. the foyer, and the front of it, and I think they built some flats on top. Did you manage so, to get anything when they knocked it down? No, no. Too late, I, I, I did go and have a look when it was for sale or rental, but uh, it was just a big empty barn, and all the decoration had been, it had all silvery. It was not ideal, no. And the problem is, a cinema, if you have a, just a cinema then you either move all your stuff into the cinema and it becomes a big barn with a lot of stuff in it. It, it, it doesn't become... It loses its cinema nature because you've got the stalls full of stuff. Right, um, of course, yeah. Uh, what you need is a beautiful cinema with some ancillary accommodation so you can have your, your displays elsewhere in a ballroom or a cafe attached to the cinema and then the cinema's left as a showpiece where you can show films and you can let people see the plays. Um, so there was nothing else there except the, the, the big space, and it wasn't really ideal. I think they wanted to sell it, and it's the kind of thing that we've encountered a lot. People want to sell somewhere. You would love to be able to buy it, but you don't have any money. So getting money will take time but they want to put it on the market right away and it's up for auction the beginning of next month and you just, it's, you can't get You've the money no quick enough. against no. developers, have you? You haven't. They've got money in their pocket and they want they, people who are selling it know that there's plenty of people out there ready to buy it. So we're in a, um, <clears throat> a huge hall now, I suppose. <clears throat> um, what, as well, I can see there's a stage and a screen. <clears throat> is, that, is it used for screening? Well, this is used for lots of things as... A cafe almost, isn't there? Bookshop. Yes. It's, uh, well, it, this is our event space where the events take place. And it is flexible in that if you move the seating and move the cafe tables out, you can use it and use it for anything you like, really. So, and it has been used for lots of different things. Um, and this has meant acquiring this room four or five years ago, it's meant a transformation in our um, development because it's meant that we can raise our profile a bit and um, have people coming and enjoying seeing either some of the material we have or, more importantly, some of the events that we can arrange. And uh, that helps, of course, by uh, bringing in a revenue to keep us going.
uh, we try to have a varied program, and it is quite varied, I tell <laughs> you. <laughs> you do a lot bringing in um, people who write about film and talk about film, academics, as well as... One of the difficult things is that if you want a famous film director, a famous actor, actress, whatever, you have to say, I'm sorry, we can't pay you anything. Would you come and do an evening for us? Now, people who are in work, uh, they're busy people. They also, their agents will remind them that they have a value. So uh, we did, somebody was asked and they said they wouldn't turn out for less than £3,000. So that it limits the amount of, and the kind of, the range of people we can get. I mean, we'd love to have, I don't know, Ewan McGregor or somebody, but uh, firstly, I think he lives in Los Angeles. Secondly, he's busy doing things all the time and working. And thirdly, I don't know if he would, we could persuade him to come and spend an evening here doing show for us free. One of the events you've got coming is Home Movie Day. What does that entail? Well, Home Movie Day, we started off with an enthusiast here who's very keen on sub-standard gauges of film, uh, 8mm, 9.5, 16mm. And he said, you know, can we get Home Movie Day, do Home Movie Day? I said, I don't care as long as I don't have all the extra work of it. If you'd like to run it, I'm thrilled. You go ahead. So the guy who was uh, doing it, he ran Home Movie Day, and then he moved to um, he moved to Holland to be a film archivist. Uh, and then there was a couple of years; it sort of went into abeyance because there was nobody to do the work. And I think that Lucy Smee and her friends uh, they've um, started doing it at the Curzon Soho. And uh, at some point, they, I talked to them and I said, well, you know, we're still available if you'd like to run it here. So we don't do it. They organise it and arrange it. We just host it here. And um, it's uh, interesting. We, have, we set up um, various little booths with home movie projectors of different gauges and uh, people bring the film, and some people, of course, bring huge carrier bags with hours and hours of films, <laughs> expecting to see them all. So I'm afraid we say, well, you know, we can show you a little selection of them, but other people want to, want to see their films, so we can't uh, run a whole day of your films only. So um, it's a very... And then what they usually do is one of the young women has a BFI connection. She works in the BFI and sometimes she gets um, celebrities' home movies, borrows, so that we've had Phyllis Calvert and uh, Michael Powell, director Michael Powell, oh, wow. various other people's home movies that have been screened here um, and uh, on the day. And then lots of um, other people bring these things at the moment, at least, it doesn't extend to electronic um, videotapes. It's, it's, um, at the, right now, it's um, only film. Oh, um, watch those at home, can't they? Yeah, this is it. Or you can, it's easier to get those transferred mm. and whatnot, isn't it? Uh, people want advice about transferring. Right. They want to know how to transfer, and we give advice about how to store it, you know, not to 
at extremes of temperature or dryness or dampness. Yeah, the thing is, it's a practical thing as well in terms of encouraging people to bring out film and you could stumble across something very important. And, then... to, and, to, and to, um, to see the, the, the value of it for them um, because, of course, if it's a role of something they've never seen, they don't know what it is, and that is easy then to just uh, think, oh, it's in the way, get rid of it. Whereas if they know what it is, it's, um, uh, and if it's something really interesting, um, then there's the people from the Film Institute here will give encourage them to do something serious with it, like get it copied and perhaps deposit it in the national collection if it's something that's very interesting. I'd be surprised how sometimes people don't want to be bothered. Uh, the man with the, came with this 9.5mm film that his father had taken of the... just immediately after the destruction of the Crystal Palace. He wasn't interested in knowing anything about uh, saving it or having it... Uh, looked at with a view to preservation. He just wanted to see what it was and then get home. He couldn't be bothered with anything else. So I'm afraid that's up to him. I can't lasso him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confiscating this film on behalf of cinema. (laughs) (laughs) But that was brilliant, Steve, wasn't it? What a place. It's overwhelming in a way. There's so much stuff there. You could spend days delving through it. And, you know, Ronald showed us remarkable things it is a real South London gem isn't it right up there with our best museums even if it was the building itself completely empty it'd still be fascinating I think just because of you know it's storied past you know it's impressive architecture just really exciting but then you go inside and it's just literally packed to the ceiling with stuff I didn't really think I was a cinema as in you know picture house fetishist you know I kind of uh, you have a, an eye for design and nicely made films yeah right I mean I love films as yeah, well yeah and it's not but it's not about that it's about the picture houses but it, there's just so much beautiful stuff there just like you say just packed to the rafters and you know once the tour had finished and we finished speaking to Ronald we got like a sort of bonus tour, didn't we, really? Yeah, just picking out a few favourites of his. From yeah, the I mean, he showed us the library, which is not open to the public. You know, this is the magazine library, this is the book library. And then there was a, I don't know, what was it? Probably six foot by three foot painting of Michael Winner. Yeah. That yeah. was still wrapped in in bubble wrap, where his uh, wife had sent it after he died. I'm saying packs the scene. I mean, that picture reaches the ceiling. It's ridiculous. <laughs> they don't know where to put it. And then he uh, fired up um, an old projector lamp, wasn't it? Arc lamp, was it called? Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, remarkable. I've never heard of it. I, I, I think I just assumed they use a very powerful bulb. Well, they do. But <laughs> they like, do, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they're sort of touching... I don't know. I don't know the word, Steve. It's carbon, carbon rods that are kind of touching and it creates an arc. And you can't look at it directly. It was very sort of exciting. You felt like... Uh, sort of scientific pioneer where you know this grand experiment's being presented in front of you so it's 10 pounds to get in it's money well spent and you know the other side of it is you know if you feel if you have any sort of philanthropic tendencies you're also paying towards 
maintaining a very important resource, I think, in terms of examples of design and interiors from a particular period in a particular kind of space. Check their website, cinemamuseum.org.uk, for the many events they have going on. They've got, they're always showing films. They've got two screens in there. And even if you just go in to see a film rather than going on the tour, you'll... You know, the tour's everywhere, isn't it, Steve? You can't get away from it. I've been to the Cinema Museum before for a screening, and even then, just walking through, it's a really sort of immersive experience. Just round the corner from Elephant, the Castle Tube Station. It's, uh, I, I was really was uh, so impressed. Northern Line, Bakerloo, 28 bus uh, services. Yeah. A reminder to use the Amazon banner on southlandhardcore.com whenever you're shopping on Amazon, and we'll get a kickback. And if you could sign up for an Amazon Prime trial using using the link on southlandhardcore.com, we'll get £5 to fund the show. You know, we pay £10 each to get into the cinema museum. So if four of you do an Amazon Prime trial this week, cancel it whenever you want. It's free, it costs you nothing. We can pay for this week's show. The Holdfast Network is home to South London Hardcore, Process, The Leftfield Shout and Forward the Hamlet. Visit holdfastnetwork.com or search for Holdfast Network in iTunes.